Hey there, you're listening to Ghost Notes and Friends, the podcast where we talk about music inside and out with friends. My name's Noah, you probably know me as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, you probably know me as 12-Tone, and today we have another really exciting guest. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Hi, I'm Lola Sebastian. I run a YouTube channel called Lola Sebastian, so no alternate names there, where I talk about pop culture, literature, and sometimes music as well. It's it's actually through kind of following you on Twitter that I realized how much of a music head you are, because I think it, it comes through a little bit in your channel, but I feel like you're often more cornered into the, the kind of like literature and pop culture stuff, which is also stuff that I love and I think is great about your channel. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I would love to consider myself a music head. I don't feel that educated, but it's definitely a lifelong passion. I grew up playing cello. <laughs> from a very young oh, age nice. Love and I uh, got a lot of success with that played in a lot of like local symphonies bands etc but um I've kind of switched to doing like a singer songwriter kind of thing haven't released anything recently but hopefully soon so fingers crossed <laughs> <laughs> That's actually Very kind cool. of a, a nice little segue into what we wanted to talk about this episode, which you you said talking about the idea of musician eras. So you've moved you've moved past your cellist era and into your indie <laughs> singer songwriter era. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm in my reputation era. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I, I guess if we want to dive into sort of artist eras, are there sort of any initial directions that you want to start off with or anything in particular you wanted to talk about? Here's a couple ideas I had that I thought you guys might find interesting for discussion. I think like most albums now are concept albums, which I frankly can't complain about, but is it necessary? Is it, you know, putting strict impositions on artists? That's something we could talk about. Yeah, I'd be happy to start there. We've done, we've talked about a little bit about albums before, and I think that's a I think a really interesting direction to take that because I think one of the things that I've felt about albums for a long time is that they're sort of not necessary from a technical standpoint anymore. Like there there are so many other ways to distribute music. And so the question of like, what is, why do you want to do this as an album? I think really lends itself to concepts, lends itself to having a larger specific story you want to tell as opposed to, you know, albums in like the, 40s where you were just putting out these are the songs that I have exactly I think that's also like it meshes well into the thought of kind of eras because when each album is kind of its own concept an album tends to yeah. at this point you know introduce an era whereas like you know if you look at musicians yeah. with eras in the past like you know like Bowie's Berlin trilogy or Dylan's Electric trilogy or Stevie Wonder's kind of like classic era those are three album four album runs, right? Whereas, yeah, yeah, now each each album, yeah, like you said, Lola, is is so conceptual and so often, in addition to being conceptual musically, has a look with it, you know, has a kind of brand with yeah. the tour, has it, it, each album is its own is its own era often. It's interesting because I, I started thinking when like when did this start? When did this start to become the norm? Um, I've seen a lot of people point to Thriller. I actually wonder if it goes as far back as like Beatlemania because the Beatles kind of yeah. leaning later in their career, they're releasing a new concept for every album, which makes me think like, you know, is it music journalism itself that has made <laughs> the idea of an era or like stand culture itself, quote unquote, um, just the fans of musicians, have we made this hellscape for ourselves? You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I think a lot of it, especially historically, has is something that is imposed more than it is necessarily something that artists are doing intentionally. Yes. So creating these eras, it's a way of one example, and I, I'm I think I mentioned this before we even started recording, and I'm sure Noah knows this as well. I'm probably gonna be talking about Jackson Brown sometimes here. Which I do that. Phenomenal. Uh, I love Jackson Brown. But yeah, no, you look at Jackson Brown and like people talk about like his protest trilogy, uh, which is generally lives in the balance, world in motion, and looking east. But those weren't consecutive. Like there's I'm Alive happened in between the second and third ones because he just had a different type of album he wanted to make. And that was like, no, I still have a little bit more protest music to make. And so I think that viewing those three without and sort of taking I'm Alive out, putting that in a separate bin and saying those three are an era is very much something that you have to do externally rather than looking at his actual process because his actual process had that other album in there that just doesn't make sense if you want to talk about this as an era. I think I think very similarly is Bowie's Berlin trilogy, which is so kind of like, you know, famously, it, it makes sense. They were all recorded in Berlin in an era of his life. But I actually think thematically the trilogy, uh, this is an argument I've made before, that it should actually be station to station, low and then heroes. Station to station is before Berlin, before that trilogy. But in terms of kind of like... Yeah thematic content, what he's talking about, what he's getting at, Station to Station is actually his first kind of flirtation with this sort of weird, dark, kraut rock thing that he does. But because Low Heroes and Lodgers were all recorded in Berlin, people like to lump them together. And it's funny because people like to lump them together as, you know, this great trilogy when the general consensus on Lodger is actually that it's it's fine. It's not it's not a great album. <laughs> I'm sure there's Lodger stands out there that I'm pissing off now. But really, it's like, here's this trilogy with two really classic albums and yeah. a really classic album before it that's not part of the trilogy because it wasn't recorded in Berlin, even though it is yeah. doing kraut rock stuff. Yeah, it's kind of a Godfather thing. Yes, it's this yeah. Kind of compartmentalization. Yes. Yeah. Um, especially retrospectively, it feels imposed, and I would say in the modern era, it allows for some emotional distance and therefore emotional safety. Mm. Yeah. Um, because we like to imagine. I think it's exciting to think that your favorite artist is successfully multifaceted. And so we try to lump all of those different facets together, which is, uh, I think it's, especially when it comes to admittedly, like I do tend to lean into singer songwritery, like know-how or whatever. Um, yeah. I do find that really interesting because people will literally lump together like, oh, these are protest songs and these are just plain folk songs and these are psychedelic songs and these are songs about grief. And I'm like, yeah, but it all tells a narrative in chronological order. And then if you take it out of that yeah. chronological order, I feel like some thematic dissonance gets lost. If I can slightly tangent into something that's not music related Absolutely. for a second. Uh, this is something I feel very strongly about in the context of Terry Pratchett's Discworld. Oh. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Where I think... People will talk about, you know, oh, reading the Guard series or the Witches series. And no, there's not that much continuity. They're not that connected. You can, do, And it's sort of true. Like, clearly, you can get a full story just reading up one of those series. But I think that it misses a lot of what he was doing. And I think if you... Discworld, to me, makes a lot more sense if you view it as a really, like, a 40-something book treatise on storytelling through the medium of stories. I think that if you go through it chronologically and you see how, like... 
you know, which is abroad influences Reaper Man, which influences small gods. I might have got those two backwards. I don't think I did. But you sort of see how each one leads into the next and see how his thinking evolves through these works that he wrote in this particular chronological order, instead of just trying to pick and choose, oh, these are the ones that fit this particular story I'm trying to tell with this work. That's a beautiful comparison. And it's funny because the first Discworld book that I ever read was Equal Rights. And I, like, it was recommended to me by a friend. Yeah. And uh, I felt like I was just placed in the middle of something and I did not have a good time. Yeah. So I actually went back and started from the beginning after that. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting because, like, I'm always the one sort of place where I'm wary about that is that color of magic is not that good. Yeah. And so I always sort of, <laughs> the advice I give if anyone listening to this hasn't read had Discworld and is curious is start with Small Gods, because that is fairly distinct from a lot of the other stuff narratively, but it's also one of his best. Really and that will give book. you a sense of if you like what he's doing and then go back to the beginning and read through it once you have something, some reason to commit to getting through Color of Magic, because again, it's not great. It's fine. <laughs> Yeah, it's not great. I remember trying to start on Color of Magic once, and then later I had a friend who was into Pratchett that got me started on Mort. And Mort was a great entrance point yeah. to actually kind of get in. Yeah, Mort is the one that Pratchett has in interviews said is the first one he's still happy with. Or I say still, he is unfortunately no longer with us, but was at the time still happy with because it was where the books started being jokes in service of a story instead of a story in service of jokes. And so yeah. the first three, Color of Magic, Light, Fantastic, and then Equal Rights, he felt, and I, I would largely agree, were largely a series of jokes that had a narrative structure, were hung on a narrative structure instead of the other way around. Uh, but yeah. So anyways, this is the Terry Pratchett podcast. <laughs> yeah, we should start one of those. <laughs> it's very but, funny to me how every podcast I go on starts talking about books, even if that's not the yes. Uh, <laughs> I crave I crave the ability to talk about books. Someday I'm going to enter my books era and then you'll all be yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like conspicuously hiding my copy of um, every like Pete Seeger play and sing book I have. <laughs> <laughs> I I think it's interesting though to to get us kind of back on the eras thing. I think something that often you know when you look at someone like like you talked about like with the Beatles or something like that. Often I think what happens is eras are actually often things that are a historical moment that is happening that people then kind of yeah. prescribe onto the artist. You know, like, you, especially you look at, you look at kind of like Revolver and Sgt. Pepper's and the Beatles' psychedelic yeah. era, and those are huge, seminal psychedelic albums, but also that's every, everything in that era was going very psychedelic. Like, psychedelics hit the West Coast and then, you know, came across the world, across the pond, and you have all of these artists sort of doing this thing. Uh, but what's different about the Beatles is that the Beatles existed both before and after this era in a way that, you know, the zombies or the 13th floor elevators didn't. But, you know, the yeah. we're defining as an era in the Beatles is really, I think, a lot more an era in history there. That's a very interesting point for sure. Yeah, now I'm literally just sitting here like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's a really, it's a good point. Uh, another thing that I think is worth noting on the sort of more zoomed in side, like 
if, for looking at things that are specific to bands, is that yeah. like I think a lot of times these eras are very messy and trying to draw boundaries. Like again, you look at someone like Jackson Brown, and he was very much a, I have written ten songs here they are on an album thing, and you can get a sense of what he was thinking about in those different periods. But like. There's a lot of fluctuation in terms of themes because he's not really trying to craft these cohesive things. Yeah. But I think a lot of times when you look at really clear, distinct lines where there's an obvious era shift in a band's discography, nine times out of ten, what that is is a lineup change. Like, mm. you look at Jethro Tull, I think, as... A, as one of, again, another one of my favorite bands. And I think probably the most striking change, like era shift in their history is from sort of the folk rock trilogy of like Songs from the Woods, Heavy Horses, Stormwatch into their electronic rock period of the early 80s uh, with like Broadsword and the Beast, stuff like that. What that was, was that Ian Anderson had been working on a solo album. Uh, the label convinced him to publish it as a Jethro Tull album, but it didn't have most of the Jethro Tull, uh, current lineup of Jethro Tull on it. And so there was a whole fight about that. There was a big falling out. Basically, the entire band left and they brought in a new set of people. And so like the people playing on Stormwatch, except for Ian Anderson and Martin Barr, not the people playing on Broadsword and the Beast. And so you get a complete reinvention of the band sound because it's not really the same band. In you know, it is in name, and we've we've talked about this before, Noah. And yeah, it's definitely is still Jethro Tull. Like you have a different set of people in the room and that changes what you're doing. And that's where you get those really clear, hard dividing lines between like, this is what they sounded like before this era. This is what they sounded like after. And I think a lot of that is going to be either changes in the lineup of the band or maybe bringing in a new producer, working with someone else, bringing a different voice into the process. So speaking of prog rock, which also like one of my favorite genres ever, we could maybe mark them as, as a shift like Prague coming into yeah. the popular culture. Because, for example, when people think of Pink Floyd, they're thinking of like Roger Waters and David Gilmore era yeah. Pink Floyd. But Sid Barrett is like this specter of mythology <laughs> hanging over Pink Floyd. So people talk about Sid Barrett a lot, but I don't see people actually like listening to Sid yeah. Barrett era Pink listening Floyd like a lot. And, yeah. I think there is this narrativizing that goes on in prog rock that was so deliberately visual working with visual artists and stuff yeah that we can't say that like current pop stars would exist without like the wall the final cut in my humble opinion but i'm also (laughs) just a massive pink floyd fan so i think in a lot of ways and i think this is kind of what we're getting to as we're kind of talking about the historical and then going to be talking about more modern artists and their eras a a lot of the ways the line that people like to say is the rock is dead thing but A lot of the ways that rock kind of persists and isn't so dead is in the like the entire cultural way that we approach music is something that came from rock. The idea of like we're saying eras, the idea of albums as the kind of almost like default method of listening to music, the idea of the cycle of album stadium tour, you know, go back into the studio and write. So many of these concepts are essentially like unique to rock and roll. They're things that rock brought to the forefront. So even if a lot of the stuff happening right now isn't really musically from a technical level, and, you know, a lot of it still kind of is, but let's say that it's not, you know, 
four yeah. people, guitar, bass, the sort of technical sound of rock culturally. Whatever other instruments, you know. Yeah, those those are the two instruments, guitar and bass. I've, <laughs> yeah, I don't no. know. There's probably another <laughs> very important one at the heart of most rock bands, but I don't know what it is. Kitar, you're right. I forgot yeah, about the kitar. I, I was definitely thinking kitar. Yeah, no, the trap set kitar. <laughs> but yeah, a lot of what we kind of like, a lot of the ways that musicians operate is conceptualized by rock. And I think it's interesting because I think when we get to a lot of these modern artists that do have, you know, like I, I think one of the artists we've been brushing around and it's inevitable is going to come up is Taylor Swift. And I think that the I way so much to say. I think that a lot of the way <laughs> that she conceptualizes and brands herself is kind of built on how we have, you know, reflectively decided that artists work through our looking at artists like our your yeah. your Bowie or your Dylan or people like that who definitely there were shifts but they're not quite as you know drastic as people think and it's not like you know I guess I guess Dylan's electric trilogy is a pretty kind of hard line in the sand yeah a clear specific yeah but even then, uh, another side of Bob Dylan, lyrically, which is the, his last acoustic album, is lyrically way closer to his Electric trilogy because he's doing these kind of surrealistic, like amphetamine dream sort of deals compared to his earlier stuff where he's doing like rewriting Americana folk songs as protest. So even that era, which seems very clearly delineated, isn't. But I, I guess what I'm saying is I think that like this kind of perspective of eras has informed the career trajectory that you'll see of artists like Taylor Swift or Beyonce or Kendrick Lamar yeah. or these big pop stars today. Yeah, and I think a lot of that, as I think yeah, Lolo was mentioning earlier, is that it feels these days like that's much more intentional. Yes. You look at Taylor Swift and like she started out as a country singer. There was a very clear line where she was like, okay, I'm a pop singer now. And like she's still... There's still country influence in what she's doing, but like there's a clear hard line that felt very deliberate. And then you look at, you know, reputation and that feels again like a very specific shift. And like over the course of her career, she's made very, again, very specific decisions about how she wants these eras of her career to be perceived in ways that I, I don't necessarily think you saw as much of a couple decades earlier. Although, I, as you mentioned, like thriller and stuff like that, there definitely is some aspect of that going back at least that far. I was going to say, I, I couldn't find much um, written in terms of like talking about music eras, but it's also not exactly very, um, what's the word, like SEO friendly. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> so that could be part <laughs> of it. Like maybe there's lots of great things that have been written and I just couldn't find very many of them. But it is interesting because most of the music journalists uh, that I do follow said that for them, it begins with Thriller, that that was the yeah. first pop era that was its own holistic experience. And I really yeah. appreciate the comparisons of pop eras to performance art, because it's not just about mm. the songs and the artwork and the videos It's or the live tours. It's about all of these things at once. It's about embodying a kind of persona for a short period of time. Yeah, that's that's very true. And the modern kind of post-thriller conception of the era is one that is like kind of necessarily self-aware about what it is to be a pop star. Yeah. Whereas like you look at like the Beatles and Dylan, and I think 
they they come from an era where like there was nobody like the Beatles before. You know, there was nobody that that no. was that level of pop star. So they couldn't possibly have had the kind of self-awareness and self-reflection that someone like Michael Jackson had where he's like, OK, yeah. this is the trajectory of my career. This is what I'm going to look like. This is how I'm going to sound. This is the vibe I'm going to put off. Yeah, I mean. If we want to talk about Thriller, I think an important thing to note about that is that Thriller was the early 80s. And like, Noah, you were talking about how sort of rock has carried forward in terms of our perception of how popular music works. But like in terms of shadows whose legacy we're living under, the 80s is also a huge one. Yes. Because that's that's the rise of MTV more than anything. Like, you know, there's a lot of other things too, synthesizer technology, et cetera. But in terms of like artist images and the rise of the music video changed, I would argue changed everything because it makes it much more, makes the visual aesthetic, you know, because you, you could do like an album sleeve or whatever. But like, if you have to put together four videos for your singles and you want to have like a specific consistent look and you want to have a brand to it, that changes how you're thinking about your own perception in ways that, you didn't really have to do prior to that particular era of music history. So fun fact, my favorite song of all time is Video Killed the Radio Star. Ooh, it's a good song. <laughs> what inspired me to start thinking about like this topic when you were like, hey, do you want to be on the show and talk about something? Is I was just listening through like my favorite songs. That one got me thinking about maybe how we can delineate between concept albums or eras yeah. or even if we can. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I think there are things that come out where part of where I think you can kind of delineate now is is that the album cycle, and this is also something that Michael Jackson, which is actually still relatively rare in the 80s, had a very long album cycle, right? Whereas yeah. we look at these eras, Dylan's Electric Trilogy is like half of a Taylor Swift album cycle. You know, I mean... You know, she she right. actually has yeah. done, been releasing more lately, especially with Folklore and Evermore. But like in the past, or it's like, you know, half of an Arcade Fire album cycle, right? Like the album cycle yeah. has become so much longer. And because of that, there is this clearer delineation of eras because, you know, I can't tell you what the difference between 2012 and 2013 is, but I can sure as hell tell you what the difference between 2012 and 2017 is culturally, yeah. you know, kind of <laughs> where we're at, yeah. right? Like, So true. I, I think th that's something where, you know, with this kind of, with the era-defined musician, the longer album cycle yeah. really plays into that because just the world changes a lot in between albums where like, it used to be like like Led Zeppelin's first four albums came out within three and a half years of each other. And, you yeah. know, like that's it, it's it's kind of wild when you look back on how long albums take now. It's mind blowing. And also the artist changes, too. Right. Yes. Like I think back, you, you talk about like the five year gap of like 2012 to 2017. A lot of things changed in the world. But like I went from being 22 to 27. Yeah. That's also hugely impacted the way that I thought about things. And like I look back across sort of my career making videos uh, and the videos I'm making now are not the videos I was making five years ago. If I, had, you know, just took that one snapshot of me right now and compared it to me five years ago, 
even if the world hadn't changed, even if the world had stayed exactly the same over that time, which it didn't, uh, but even if it had, I would still be a very different person with a very different set of views and experiences. And so there becomes a much clearer line in the work that I'm making just based on the fact that you're not seeing as much of my life. Yeah. Like, this is a thing you see with, like, family members that you don't see very often. People you see once a year for the holidays or whatever change, feel like they change much more rapidly and much more distinctly than people who you're spending every day with. And so in that same sort of way, giving more space not only lets you capture more cultural zeitgeist changes, but also more internal artistic changes as well. Something that kind of got us onto in the behind the scenes when we were talking about topics, got us onto the eras is this concept of artists kind of narrativizing themselves and creating narratives. Yeah. And I think Taylor Swift is someone who's super interesting in the narrative conversation and in the era conversation because like you can clearly kind of see I think her, her eras you know everything about everything about Taylor Swift seems very deliberate it seems like she has a yeah. very good sense of how she's perceived and chooses to take on these personas to kickstart an era like like reputation very much seemed like it was going to be her her villain arc was that was the whole aesthetic yeah. that was how it how it kind of went and i think it's interesting because i think you know broadly in the culture i think reputation's actually underrated as an album but i think it's an album yeah. that got a lot of scorn because it was the most kind of transparent she's been in you know this is the narrative that i'm doing now but you know like evermore and folklore like Taylor Swift, I'm a cozy indie alternative artist now. That's just as much of a kind of deliberate, constructed decision and identity as reputation is. Yeah, and one thing I want to stress on that, which I don't think this is what you were saying, but I think this is a thing other people might yeah. say in similar words. But that's not a bad thing. No, if if anything, that's part of the appeal of her as an artist. Yeah. Same, same with Beyonce. I, I just think there are a lot of people who would make that argument. They're like, oh, it, it's it's so fake. And so it's not, but it's like, yeah, all, all art is yeah. at some level fake. That's just art. But like, she is carefully crafting aspects of her art that a lot of people either don't think about or don't feel comfortable thinking about. And that isn't necessarily a good or a bad thing. It's just, she is being very specific about how she wants her story to be perceived. Yeah. So I have Taylor Swift brain worms. Um, but so, like, you know, <laughs> worth mentioning. Um, I've been a fan <laughs> of hers since I was literally like seven years old. So unfortunately, you know, that's, it's a presence. It's a commercial <laughs> presence. <laughs> but at the same time, I will say, I think that Taylor Swift is actually so broadly appealing, not only because she covers so many different genres, um, or at least references yeah. them. But I'll also say, I think she is a lot, this might sound crazy, but I think that she is a lot more emotionally honest uh, than your, I don't know, average pop star. Yeah. I'm, you know, everyone talks about like, oh, Katy Perry, you know, Teenage Dream had a record tying five number one singles. And if you compare, if you include her, what is it, like the complete confection question mark, then that's six number one singles, you know, and that's so incredible. But I'm like, yeah, but all of her 
she wasn't narrativizing. You know what I mean? Yeah. There is no Katy yeah. Perry narrative. Taylor Swift is taking the singer songwriter route and turning it into pop. And she herself is credited. Like she said that she would not have been capable of writing pop music if she weren't uh, working with first Max Martin and then Jack Antonoff. And that it's really like yeah. their responsibility to turn it into pop music, um, which I find very interesting because people often talk about her like she's this very disingenuous figure and that you know oh the reputation yeah. era was evil taylor it was her persona and i was like i think that's actually called being like a self-aware late 20 something <laughs> <laughs> i think she was just like recognizing her flaws yeah I, right i mean i think this is i think this is one of the things that's that's interesting is like i think everybody tries to create their own identities. You know, yeah. it's just artists are doing it through a way that other people are, you know, kind of connecting with in this yeah. sense. Like, I, I think, yeah, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with creating your own identity because I think that's what all of us are doing with e even often what, what kind of, you know, we look at musicians by like, they're like, you know, you know, their era by genre, you know, like Bowie's Blue Eyed Soul yeah. era or something like that. And we personally often just do the exact same with music we listen to, you know, like I went through yeah. a punk era. I went through a psychedelic rock era. Like even now, so much of my kind of like musical listening habits and persona is still very much tied in. Like right now I'm, I'm super for the last couple of years have been super into progressive soul and like Curtis Mayfield yeah. and Marvin Gaye and stuff like that. And that's, Love. yeah, yep. yeah. Just the best. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, but that's, that's an era in my life where obviously I like the music, but also I am aware that there is a certain kind of person that I am reflecting by, you know, so like every chance I get expressing my love for Curtis Mayfield, you know, I'm creating the identity of myself as the kind of guy that loves Curtis Mayfield. You know, these yeah. we're identities are things that are in constant construction. And I think that like when we pretend otherwise, we do disservices to ourselves and to each other. Like, I agree with you that a lot of these like eras when we apply to artists will sort of be framed around genre yeah. and how they develop in that direction. But I also think narrativizing specifically is a really powerful way to escape that. The quintessential example of this in my mind is Lemonade. Yes. Right? The oh, Beyonce yeah, album. If you listen to Lemonade, stylistically, it's all over the place. There are so many genres on that record. It's yeah. not trying to be coherent, except that it's trying to tell a very coherent story. And you can follow that story and you can reflect that story onto, you know, what you know about Beyonce's life at that time and what she was going through. It becomes very clearly this complete work of art that I think stands pretty separate from anything else she's done on either side era-wise. Well, what's really interesting to me about Lemonade, and I wanted to get to this, is in my mind... Lemonade stands separately in Beyonce's career, but Lemonade actually stands as a very interesting moment where it is like 444 Lemonade and the Carters is kind of yeah. an era of yeah. Jay-Z and Beyonce together and is, you know, ostensibly 
probably like, you know, based off of a thing that happened, but also is this sort of narrative that they are telling about themselves as artists and as a couple. And they kind of created this narrative of themselves as, you know, like, you know, it starts with it starts with kind of Lemonade in 444, where you have 444 is Jay-Z kind of reflecting on his age, reflecting on his mistakes, doing this formalized apology to Beyonce. Lemonade is Beyonce kind of asserting herself, asserting her independence and creating this political kind of call to action protest album uh, within the framework of their life. And then together they released the Carters, which yeah. I, I, I think it's interesting because I think it's a it's a thing where they just didn't quite stick the landing. I don't I think the Carters is a fine album, but it's nowhere near on the same tier as 444 or Lemonade for me, both of which are just remarkable pieces of art but it seems like this this whole kind of it's an era of both of theirs kind of together yeah, like a that collaborative they, yeah, era yes exactly yeah and you know i would actually i would add that part of what makes 444 interesting is that it's creating um a historical context to the beyonce jay-z yeah. phenomenon it's that self-awareness again like he's writing about the significance of being a black millionaire billionaire even Yes. Um, and then he's connecting it to his interpersonal relationships. Well, and and that's the whole the whole kind of thing that it culminated to is the the sort of the aesthetic of the Carters is kind of, you know, is kind of like black royalty, right? Like it's kind of establishing themselves like the video for Ape Shit has them sitting in the Louvre, right? You know, it's and, the, and they are the yeah. art. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, like it's it's kind of them establishing themselves as, you know, this united front power couple of the musical world. And it's interesting cuz then, you know, after that, after the, there's this kind of narrative of them on top, then, you know, Beyonce kind of sheds that and goes and does some, you know, she did like her latest album, which is also phenomenal. Her doing a house album doesn't fit into that narrative. It's just this new sort of chapter of this new side of Beyonce, right? Renaissance is, uh, I would say, sonically cohesive, but I'm not, and sure, it might also be like thematically cohesive, but it's not narrativizing. Yes. Which I I love the album. I don't think that you have to. But this brings me to my other point, right? Is it's like this need to have eras. Is it actually necessary that an era be narrativizing or does that just make the era great? That's my question. I think, I mean, this has been a thing I've harped on for a very long time is that like good music analysis and like a good art analysis in general engages with the works on their own terms. And so I think that in a context where a narrative is being crafted, an era should needs to be narrative. But in context where it's not, where it is more about a specific style or a specific theme or like whatever, looking for what the artist is trying to do and seeing how that ties together more than necessarily trying to, like, basically, I don't think an era needs to be doing any one specific thing in order to be an era, because I think that the idea of a musical era is too nebulous to really capture in that sense. And it's more about, ultimately, it's basically about vibes, right? Like, yes. <laughs> like this is, I have a vibe that these three albums, that, like, Bowie's Berlin Trilogy is a trilogy, 
because of historical contexts and whatever, and because of certain sonic elements. But like, you know, you might look at some other thing and not be looking in those for those same criteria because that's not the criteria that feel relevant to that particular artist or that particular set of works. And so, yeah. There's kind of a chicken and egg situation with eras and narrativizing because I think so often it is the narrativizing that creates eras in our mind. But I also think, I mean, it, it really depends on how you're defining eras because like if you look back, you know, there's from less from a kind of like cultural era thing, but there's very technical kind of eras to a lot of jazz artists. You look at Miles Davis and like Miles Davis and really a lot of the a lot of the scene kind of in the 50s, there was this era where the whole jazz scene was pushing bebop as far as it could and trying as hard as they could to do the craziest bebop thing ever. And then John Coltrane released Giant Steps and and did it. And like, you know, that's yeah. what everyone <laughs> was building to. That's it. He did it. And Miles Davis enters this era of modal jazz where it's time for a return to melody. And, you know, he releases yeah. Porgy and Bess and Milestones and obviously kind of Blue that enters this new era. But it's it's this weird thing because, you know, there there's no... There's no narrative narrativizing about around Miles Davis around doing that. It's just him reacting to the trends in his scene and deciding to be a trailblazer. And in doing that kind of ends up shifting his career, but also, yeah, more importantly, shifting the whole scene. Right. Yeah. And also kind of bringing Coltrane specifically along for the ride, if I remember correctly. Like he yes, was on, he was on kind of blue, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. He he plays on blue and green in kind of blue. He plays what I, I think might be my favorite instrumentalist solo ever in history, which is, you know, a hot take. Dang. But <laughs> yeah, it's really I good. I mean, yeah. Not sure how hot the take John Coltrane plays good solos. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think that's actually the predominant opinion. <laughs> yeah, that's like, true. Best ever maybe is, you know, but just... <laughs> Listen, I mean, yeah. if you were like, it's actually Kenny G, that would definitely <laughs> yeah, be a hot no. take. But Coltrane is very safe, I think. <laughs> no, no, what Kenneth G. My favorite solo of any <laughs> instrument of all time was the yeah. was what I was saying. Yeah. But yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, I, you're right. Saying saying Coltrane is good is is a lukewarm take at best. <laughs> The fact that you put him higher than say Gilmore, that's that's yes. also that's a take at least. But yes. you know. Coltrane, good at solos, bold. Hey, you is my favorite solo Ooh. on any instrument of all time. Actually, that that brings me back to something that kind of earlier when we were talking about Pink Floyd, I think something that's interesting about their, we, we were kind of talking about them in the context of lineups. And I think it's interesting because yeah. I would, in my mind, put The Wall as a different era than the kind of three albums that came before it. And while there weren't, technically lineup changes there was a big power shift in the dynamic where like rick wright kind of left the band and you know went through a big depression and wasn't very vocal and roger waters really kind of like it's it's essentially a roger waters album the wall with some really really incredible 
uh, you know, instrumentals by Wright and Gilmore, but so much of the the kind of ethic of that album is Roger Waters. And, you know, to me, like listening to The Wall and listening to Animals, which is just a few years before, they could basically be different bands, you know? Oh, yeah. absolutely. And, you know, people are so mean to Roger Waters. I like uh, to be fair. Hmm. Roger Waters is also so mean to people. Yeah. Yes, no, um, I'm specifically. <laughs> yes, absolutely. However, what I mean specifically is like I always see people be like, "I'm a massive Pink Floyd fan," but not the Roger Waters eras. And I'm there's this part of me that's like, "Why not?" Yeah. Because a like you know the Wall is my favorite, but b you know. I actually, I more so see a case of like less someone being like a megalomaniac who's uh, domineering control over the rest of the band and forcing them to do his vanity projects and more so like someone who had a lot to say um, and let it stew for years. It's, you know, someone who was constructing this thing very carefully over a long period of time. And isn't that what an era should be? Ooh, I like that. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I mean, I th- I think it's also true that like with Waters there, it's very similar to a lot of the um kind of like discourse around Paul McCartney, where like you know Paul McCartney during the kind of later Beatles phase has the same sort of you know like reputation of being the domineering, controlling person, but also similar to late late Beatles and late Pink Floyd was also just a lot of people that weren't really that motivated to do music together as a band and one person in the band having a clear idea of what he wanted to do and trying to kind of, you know, yeah. wrangle the band together to to actually do it. So I, I agree with you. I do I do think that it, it's also funny that people say, like, people will say, you know, they don't like Roger Waters era when all of Pink Floyd's albums post Barrett have a whole lot of Roger Waters on them. Like he's a pretty big part of Dark Side of the Moon and Wish You Were Here. I was just going to say, like, I cannot. That's yeah, that part is so crazy to me. I'll never understand that take because it's kind of like saying I love Rush, but not Getty Lee. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, why? You know, oh, because he's the one who is the storyteller. What? Yeah. Like. Very silly. I will also say on the topic of narrativizing, I do find the idea that Thriller was the first era a little um, little divisive in that regard, because although yeah. I think it had aesthetic cohesion and sonic cohesion, I'm not sure it has that narrative cohesion. But you know what definitely has that narrative cohesion um, is the other great Jackson, my favorite Jackson, Janet Jackson. Um, I would actually probably argue after mulling it over for a couple weeks that the velvet rope was the first era. Yeah. I mean, it kind of speaks to just the difficulty of nailing down a first anything. Yeah. To to me as well as like, I I don't, I'm not disagreeing with you. Uh, it just, (laughs) you know, you, you see that like these things to sort of, it's very, comfortable from a storytelling perspective to say this was the first thing this is it wasn't happening and now it's happening but of course that's almost never what happens like there's always this sort of thing brewing in the background yeah like uh noah's uh video on like the first metal album one that i always come back to is just like you know that it's not that black sabbath was the first metal album it's that it's the last album that has any claim to being the first metal album. Yes. Absolutely. And before yeah, that, you have all of these things, which is like, maybe, I don't know. But after Black Sabbath, it's like, okay, we it's a thing now. 
there's there's no arguments anymore, but there's always that buildup of this idea percolating in culture. I honestly, like, I'm endlessly fascinated that sort of, the sort of concept of these these times when stuff is, you know, really starting to coalesce and when you start to create these the, these moments, like I've, I've done a video on it with jazz as well with my buddy Bolden video. Like, I, I think yeah. it's it's super cool the way that we can, you know, we can clearly say, you know, there's a time before jazz and there's a time after jazz. There's a time before metal. There's yeah. a time after metal. But that weird middle ground, the, you know, the part of the gradient where reds and the yellows mix together and make like a little orange color in the middle. That's what's really interesting to me. And I think I think it's funny because, you know, with eras, I think we forget that that happens in an individual's lifetime as well, yeah. where, you know, even Taylor Swift, like red is the birth of her pop era. But red also has a lot of really great kind of like Taylor Swift pop country stuff on it. And then, you know, 1989 is full on yeah. kind of bangers front to back. But like the kind of birth of this pop <laughs> era still has a lot of a lot of really great uh, kind of earlier Taylor country stuff. And same way that like what I would call the first era is probably Electric Dylan because it also has a very distinct visual aesthetic created by uh, D.A. Pennebaker's documentary, um, Don't Look Back. A lot of a lot of that really cemented the, you know, the sunglasses, the fro, the suits, the kind of manic Dylan energy. It's all it's all there. Um, but again, it's it's not as it's not as black and white as we like to say, because the like I was saying, another side of Bob Dylan lyrically is very, very close to bringing it all back home. So there there are like I, I think I think often what I guess what I'm coming to here with eras is it's cool to look at eras and they're useful tools, but it's also interesting to get into the nitty gritty and be like, well, actually, you know, this era kind of leaks into the era before it, you know, and this era yeah. kind of leaks into the era after it because people are not, you know, simple. People are complicated. Yeah, I think, like I mentioned Jackson Brown's protest trilogy earlier, but like, if you look at them, neither Lives in the Balance nor Looking East is predominantly protest music. Like Looking East has I'm the Cat. Like these are not these are not just protest albums. Uh, world World in Motion pretty much is. Like I was just going to say, well, not entirely, but World in Motion pretty much is. But like if you look at like the other two, they they have protest songs on them, but they also have other things that are more the stuff you would expect from other eras of Jackson Brown. So again, he's sort of you have this thing that crystallizes into a conceptual era. But like you were saying, Noah, bleeds pretty heavily from both sides yeah. and sort of only right in the middle when it's like world in motion. And he's just like, I have things to say. Do you really have an album that is beyond maybe chasing you into the light? Pretty much protest music front to back. Bowie's so interesting in this because I also think Bowie is another one of these artists that, you know, he's kind of like a stand in for the chameleon musician who goes through different yeah. eras. Right. But I, I find Bowie's early career so interesting because you can listen to the man who sold the world and you can listen to hunky dory and you can hear him slowly approaching this thing and that thing is ziggy stardust and then he 
gets yeah. Ziggy Stardust, finds it, and it's beautiful, and it's perfect, and then he's like, okay, what's next, right? Yeah. You know, and you can Did often that. see that with him, and it's same with Pink Floyd, like, the in-between you know, Sid Barrett leaving and metal, there's a really, really interesting period of, you know, you listen to like, you listen to Umagama and Adam Hart Mother and those albums. And it's like, there's an idea there that they're working toward. You can see them kind of figuring out what their post Sid Barrett sound is going to be like. And there's some stuff that really doesn't work and some stuff that <laughs> <Yeah>. really works. <laughs> and it gets a little closer and then they do metal, they put together echoes, and then they're like, this is it. And then they go on like yeah. one of the greatest three album runs in music history, right? <laughs> because they find <laughs> that sound. And, you know, what we point to as that era, as, you know, maybe starting with metal or starting with uh, Dark Side of the Moon, the era is actually all of the ugly experimentation on Umagama and Adam Hart Mother and more and all of that stuff is so necessary to creating this sort of what appears in a vacuum to be just kind of this singular perfect run. For me, I actually think the transition Pink Floyd is uh, actually relatively easy to pinpoint. Um, I feel like they became the Pink Floyd that everyone quote unquote knows and loves uh, on one of these days on Umagama. Oh, yeah. I tried to yeah. pinpoint this because I was going to do a video about it. And that's the conclusion I came to. And then I was like, no one's going to be interested in this. So a lot of people that... <laughs> click on videos about Pink Floyd. Just throwing that out there. To be clear, people like videos about <laughs> Pink Floyd. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know how much your audience does, but I know that there is no artist on earth who performs for me like Pink Floyd videos perform for really? me. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good to know. I mean, so my first video that ever blew up was on um, Doug Walker's Terrible Review of the Wall. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, so uh, I but I always assumed that was because um, people were drawn into it by like Internet drama or um, like hating Channel Awesome more than yeah. like, the love of Pink Floyd. But you're kind of recontextualizing that for me now. I, I think wonder. it's both. I mean, yeah, for a long time, my most viewed video ever was about the wall, uh, not about comfortably not specifically. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. This was the first video I ever watched by you, actually. Aw. If you do a Pink <laughs> Floyd video and want to collaborate, hit me up. I know a lot about doing videos about Pink Floyd. <laughs> my job is doing Pink Floyd videos. Yeah. The rest of the channel is just a hobby. I would love to do a proper Pink Floyd video. It's actually one of my like big goals because I feel like, oh man, every time I talk about music, I don't do as good of a job as I want to, if, that, if that's fair. I did this really huge um, video essay on um, examining like identity and its relationship to parasociality uh, and so cool. the... The stories that we like tell about ourselves and the stories that we tell about other people and how like it was about um, more so how like during the pandemic, I started listening to um, Sufjan Stevens constantly. Speaking of someone who's got eras. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. He's definitely an era artist and how it really I like I found it really healing. Um, I found like it was a little eerie because I don't know if this ever happens to you guys, but like when you start listening to music that um, reminds you too much of yourself for a long time, oh, I yeah. couldn't listen to that sort of thing. Um, yeah. But that changed. And I felt like that was a significant enough change to write about. 
that, hey, now I can listen to people who remind me of myself and not die of cringe. And I talked also <laughs> about, you know, but I was kind of making fun of my own parasociality in like assuming that just because someone's art speaks to you in that way, um, that they're like yourself and how, you know, it's all kind of this artistic illusion, right? And I actually took Absolutely. it down because I felt like the response that I got to it was extremely weird. Yeah. Um, because there was a kind of line of nuance there that I feel like people didn't really know how to, um, that's not me trying to be like, I'm so smart and nuanced and everyone is, no, 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 no. no. But nuance gets lost on YouTube. You're speaking to two of the biggest music creators on the platform. Music fans fucking suck. They, they don't get <laughs> Cut that out, Caleb. That does know, not except, make it to print. for Ghost Notes listeners. Ghost Notes listeners are great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, weirdly, though, I mean, like, all the folks at, like, um, his, record, his record label, Asthmatic Kitty, were really, really cool and nice. Um, and they That's have only awesome. ever been really, really cool and nice to me. Um, so, like, you know kudos thanks but at the same time it is very it was it's very bizarre because i started getting all these comments that are like oh my god you're so right i know taylor swift like she's a close intimate friend and uh i'm so someday i'm gonna marry her and it's (laughs) more like you know people being like there's you can actually never know anything about an artist and they're all fake and they're pretending and i'm like i don't know i don't think that you can actually like make effective confessional narrative music and be fully pretending. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's uh, Maybe that's naive of me, but I think there's kind of a level of authenticity that has to be present in, like, excellent art. I don't think you can even make shitty art and be pretending. I think the act <laughs> of making art betrays things about yourself, whether you want yeah. it to or not. I think that's k- kind of why we do art, right? That's the whole the whole deal. So the term flop era comes to mind when people talk about the flop era. Often the genesis of the flop era they talk about is Katy Perry's witness. And the reason they'll give is like, oh, because it was so fake. And I don't believe, I don't think it was fake. I think that it was just so vulnerable to the point of being uncomfortable. And then when they told her to rein it in because it was making people uncomfortable, she went back to doing like banal, regular old pop. And so it's yeah. like, if she had stuck with one or the other, it might not have been a flop era, but she was like incorporating memes into music videos. And a lot of people say that's where the term flop era comes from. So maybe it's worth having a discussion, you know, within eras about like identity and authenticity. Well, I think I think one of the kind of famous cringy eras is Dylan's born again Christian era. But like... <laughs> Being a born again, if if you're a born again Christian, doing a bunch of Christian albums is probably the most authentic thing you can do to your identity, yeah. right? Yeah, I agree. Honestly, underrated albums, not great albums, but um, but not not horrible albums. But yeah, I I think I agree that they're underrated actually. So yeah. uh, you're among friends. <laughs> well, one friend, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I, I think I think what's interesting, too, and I think Witness is a good example of this, is kind of like we were talking about earlier with how eras are so kind of culturally defined. I think one something that often happens, like a flop era is often when somebody fails to have their finger on the cultural pulse. And and often, like with Witness, when they are trying to have their finger on the cultural pulse and failing like i think that there's that that kind of brings about a certain level of 
you know, cringe, especially in music where, you know, pop music, it's all about being in touch, you know, being up to date and being cool. And when someone looks like they're trying too hard to feel the cultural pulse, or I think sometimes there's eras where, you know, someone thinks this might be, you know, what's going on in the culture and clearly misses and is like, whoa, that's actually not what's going on in the culture. But I think so often trying for cultural relevance and failing can often define a flop era. Yeah, I think that's sort of like part of what happened with Reputation was that, yes, like there was this story that she was like, this is what people want from me, which I'm not saying that it's not a story that she wanted to tell, uh, but was also just like, this is a thing that people and like, like you were saying, like every era of Taylor Swift has been very precisely crafted. But here you could see that effort much more clearly because it didn't resonate yeah. with a lot of people. It was like, it was clear that this was a created identity in a way that, you know, 1989 didn't feel like, even though it, it was just as much. Uh, but yeah. 1989 was what the culture wanted. And also was just, like you said, bangers front to back. Uh, so. And I think that's that might even be the case with the Carters uh, as well, where, you know, Lemonade yeah. and 444 both felt so on the nose for conversations that were happening in society at the time. And then what kind of caps off the trilogy just wasn't wasn't as relevant to the discourse, yeah. you know, I have yeah. such a love hate relationship with reputation um, actually, because of its uh, authenticity versus inauthenticity, because although I think it's generally unrelated and not the horrible, terrible flop album people talk about it being. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Also very popular in the fandom, which I think is worth mentioning to the point where I'm like, OK, maybe the apologia is a little inappropriate because the thing about reputation is when Taylor Swift is writing songs about. Uh, OK, here's a great example. I did something bad. (laughs) I don't know if you guys are like intimately familiar with the song. I did something bad, but essentially she's like painting a portrait in a similar way to blank space um, of what the media makes her out to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's comparing it to like a witch burning. And I think that comes from a very authentic emotion. And similarly, I think the production of the song, it lands better for me because it reminds me more of like Aphex Twin or 90s Industrial with like gunshot sounds and stuff like that. Portishead would be a great comparison. Like it's giving machine gun. Um, And then a lot of the rest of the album is blatantly appropriative. And I think that's kind of an issue because she's like, this is my bad girl era. So I'm going to appropriate black music. And I'm like, okay, you know, that's a worthy conversation of having. It's, I mean, I'm not trying to say, oh, I'm bringing this conversation. It's a conversation that's been had a lot. Yeah. It's just yeah. that it's something I wish more people would acknowledge about that era. And it's also something I'm very, I'm very reticent about um, of going into. I would love to catch the era's tour if that would ever be possible. <laughs> Everyone is so excited about her doing all this reputation stuff. And I'm like, or the how the re-recording of Reputation is going to make it a hit. And I'm like, I don't know if this is actually something you want to replicate in the yeah. year yeah. 2023, because it could barely fly in 2017, right? I'm yeah. like, I think there's a cultural reckoning here that is earned. And I also think she's being authentic when she's saying that she's the problem. It's her. Yeah. <laughs> she is the problem sometimes. 
I mean, this is, again, only tangentially related to our the ostensible topic of this uh, episode. But the I think something that I'm really like an era that I'm really fascinated in a similar way that like does appropriate a lot of black culture is uh, Bowie's Blue Eyed Soul era. But one of the things that's so interesting to me about it is there's this like interview with Bowie where he's talking about how self-aware he is that this is what he's doing. And he's like kind of trying to create this devoid blue eyed soul stripped of all of the, you know, like trauma and catharsis of real soul music. And, you know, that kind of spirals him into his thin white Duke character. But it's this it's this weird thing where I don't know how to feel because he's, you know, he's doing like young Americans and topping charts and getting all these praise doing what is like it's good soul music. But the whole point of it is that it is a vacant facade, you know, a a poor impression of the progressive soul that was happening at the time in black communities that's some of the greatest music ever made. And it's this weird, I feel like it. it's, there's an interesting kind of comparison, like Taylor Swift's reputation to Bowie's blue-eyed soul. Because again, it, it, both of them, it, it feels like they know there's something wrong with what they're doing, but also think that by acknowledging there's something wrong, it gives them permission to do it, which I don't think is the case. Yeah. Well, and Bowie, he went further out with it. I mean, he quite blatantly said that the thin white Duke is a white supremacist. Yes. But I don't yeah. see Taylor Swift ever acknowledging that a lot of what she, a lot of what she does is uh, gain sympathy with um, white feminism. Yes. And it's very yeah. like, why aren't there more women CEOs? Anyways, let me appropriate black music. And it's like, Taylor, you know, yeah. that that yeah. is genuinely very problematic. And worthy of criticism as much as she's one of my favorite artists. Like my co-writer, Nalija and I, like we talk so often about like the brand of white feminism within Taylor Swift and also the way that she's very prone to um, dodging all of this criticism, um, any criticism really by, by playing this whole, like she just, gosh, she just released that song, not anti-hero where she says it's me. I'm the problem, which yes very relevant but also vigilante uh, no i'm (laughs) there's this one where she's like when people tell me i should be doing more i have to tell them i'm just too soft for this and i'm like i don't buy that i do not buy that you're too soft for this aren't you quote unquote the man if you were a man you'd be the man like you're either like really strong and self-possessed or you're self-victimizing and at a certain point you kind of have to pick whether you're actually the victim or if you're doing it to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> totally. I guess yeah. maybe that was a bit of a tangent, but this what? is something I've been thinking a lot about lately heading into the Eras tour and the kind of like evaluation of um, Midnight's Evermore folklore and uh, Lover all side by side. Because <laughs> in general, like like what Taylor Swift is doing with the Eras tour and with the Taylor's version and stuff like that is is very interesting because she's so clearly drawing attention to these identities she's had over the years in a way that you you very rarely see artists you know you know it's it's almost yeah. it's almost like she's breaking kayfabe right like yes. she's yeah which it's it's such an interesting especially when we look uh, at you know like you were talking about earlier like eras in art as 
performance heart. Like this is her reaching this kind of meta level of performance heart where she's she's performing an identity that is about the identities that she's performed in the past. And it's a really yeah. just it's it's a super interesting kind of like it's very it's a very postmodern place for a pop star to be at. Yeah, that kind of actually ties into like a thing that I wanted to bring up uh, that I've been thinking about a lot in terms of eras. It's just like, I guess, sort of artists who've been at it for so long that they sort of become post era, if that makes sense. Like, I, yes, Jackson Brown and Jethro Tull are both artists who've been active since the 70s. Toll actually since the late 60s. But they both released new albums in the last two years. And like, if you listen to Downhill from Everywhere or The Zealot Gene, and there's an argument to be made that The Zealot Gene isn't a real Jethro Tull album because Martin Barr isn't on it, but I'm not having that argument with myself right now. No one else here cares. <laughs> yeah. um, I care, but... That argument can be made, but setting that aside, looking at this as, you know, Jackson Brown and Ian Anderson at the very least, they're both... Neither of the albums is doing really anything new for the artists. Like it, it, it feels. Yeah. Like, I guess I would describe it as like retrospective eras, where they are again people old, both at like closer to the end of their lives than the beginnings by a wide margin. Like they're both looking back and seeing like, oh, this is how I make music, and they don't want to be done with it yet. And yeah. They're very different albums, right? Like Downhill from Everywhere and The Zealot Gene do not sound similar. But like you can hear shades of like Aqualung in The Zealot Gene, but you can hear shades of Songs from the Woods and you can hear shades of like of uh, Crest of a Knave and Broadsword and the Beast and all of all of these different things that Ian Anderson has done as an artist over the years are sort of nestled in there in ways where it, like again it doesn't feel like he's doing anything new but it feels like he's sort of crystallized who he hit, who he is as an artist and that's what he wants to make more of a lot of paul mccartney's late albums are very much like that too like a lot of yeah. paul mccartney's late era albums where they're they're not they're not bad albums they're not amazing albums but they're just it it just it, honestly they're they feel yeah. good to listen to because they feel like someone who just knows who they are and just wants to make a certain yeah. kind of music making it. And it's kind of almost wholesome, yeah. you know? The other thing that that brought me on that I'm really interested in is kind of, I think there's a new sort of kind of like kind of era that's emerged as we enter this era of a lot of these kind of like rock gods of the 60s and 70s dying. I mean, as we record this, yeah. David Crosby died yesterday. Rest in peace. Yep. Um, but you do get, there's this kind of like, these these albums, you know, first video I ever did on my channel was comparing Black Star to You Want It Darker. These kind of self-reflective, like, very kind of morbid, on death's doorstep sort of albums that you're getting from a lot of these legacy acts. And it's really interesting because I think often like these kind of, you know, you know, like Leonard Cohen and Bowie, my favorite Bowie album ever is probably Black Star. And you want it darker and yeah. thanks for the dance are up there with my favorite uh Cohen and like even like Iggy Pop did American Valhalla, which is a really like solid underrated album that's kind of looking back, looking on his death. I think it's interesting because if we look at sort of 
what we were talking about, about eras being about cultural pulse and what we were talking about, about where authenticity plays into it. Like, I think there's this this deep vulnerability that these artists have being in their kind yeah. of end of life era. And I think for for a lot of artists, it it opens them up to do some really magnificent swan songs. Yeah. And it's funny you bring those up. I'm I'm obsessed with Leonard Cohen generally, but right now I'm going through like a you want it darker thing, um, where I'm just <laughs> lately I cannot stop listening to it. I'm obsessed. It's so but good. Black Star and American Valhalla are probably my favorite um, Bowie and Iggy Pop albums. Also, so maybe this is like a me problem. That's, yeah. <laughs> Again, never uh, How do you feel never about heard Johnny anyone Cash's else hurt? shout out American Valhalla. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, what do I feel about Johnny Cash's hurt? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm a Nine Inch Nails stand, so like. <laughs> Although I, I give him credence for um, doing Nine Inch Nails better than Nine Inch Nails, I will not give him credence for um, his personal Jesus cover because uh, I have limits <laughs> here. I've got limits. The, no, yeah, have to draw the line yeah. somewhere. <laughs> love Johnny Cash. Love Depeche Mode slightly more, just to be yeah. comparing. <laughs> um, what do you guys think of this backlash, too, against eras as a concept? I keep seeing artists complaining about uh, the very term eras and its prevalence in stan culture on social media. I have a quote here, quote, it's actually a tweet um, by Ariana Grande from October 9th, 2018. Um, she wrote it, and this is verbatim, it ain't over. I don't really like eras. I just want to make music and drop it whenever and perform it. I don't want to conform to the like routine or like formula anymore. I love music. I ain't waiting another two years to drop it. I want to share it with you when it's fresh. And also, you know, another incident that comes to mind is Billie Eilish hopping on TikTok, um, making a secret account, quote unquote, and yeah. um, where she just posted herself being like, is it just me or does Billie Eilish suck now? She's in her flop era. <laughs> <laughs> this is This is kind of just something that has always existed that's just amplified yeah. by the pressures of social media where, you know, like there's people say Bob Dylan's self-portrait is an album that he made intentionally badly to scare off fans, which is, I don't think true because self-portrait's no, actually agree with that a pretty good album. And, you know, like <laughs> if you're going to make an album to scare off fans you're not going to call it self-portrait. Like it's a pretty, right. you know, I, I, I think I think there's kind of an ebb and flow and it's this weird symbiosis between, you know, creatives and fans where like like we talked about, like so much of the mythology of creatives and how their careers are defined is always going to be by their fans. But yeah, the reality is they're people. They're not they're people first and artists second. And, you know, it, it's, it feels weird to have, you know, like I, I can totally relate to the artists because, you know, I don't want my, I, you know, there's probably people that would say polyphonics in his flop era. Cause now he doesn't do yeah. surface level critiques of dad rock. I he does videos. Oh, I, I say that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> As someone who is a creative for a living, I, I totally understand that impulse of artists to not want to be defined the way yeah. their fans define them. But I think that's just that's just kind of the nature of the gig, you know, like I, yes. I've got no 
I have no problem with artists complaining about it. If you're not allowed to complain about your job, then it's literally 1984, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> Welcome to New York. It's been waiting for you. Yeah, yeah. Yes. but no. Uh, <laughs> like, I think fundamentally the concept of eras, like basically any other sort of analysis is inherently reductive. It requires you to take these things that were like... Great point. Have all of this nuance to them. And like I, when you talk about the Berlin trilogy, that's three yeah. whole albums. Yeah. Like I can't summarize three albums in any three words, especially if the first one is the. But like <laughs> from an artist's perspective, like I, I get the negative reaction of it, of just like it feels like you are being misinterpreted or reduced or the statements that you're making are losing their nuance because as an artist, that's always going to matter to you a lot more than it matters to anyone else. That's that's a frustrating reality, but it's kind of the reality. And so I, like, I get the pushback of just being like, I don't want you to think of these three albums as like a thing I did that you can just sort of write off as this whole single experience. I want you to listen to the work and understand what I'm trying to say. And you can do that, but there's also just space where Sometimes I just want to talk about the Berlin trilogy. Sometimes I don't yeah. need to be going through song by song, line by line, and making every possible observation. Sometimes that's not the level at which I'm looking. And so eras aren't for artists is the thing for me yeah. more than anything. That's not the point. And that, that doesn't make them good or bad. It just means that I understand coming from an artist's perspective, being biased against the concept. Yeah, I think it's very similar to, like, we've talked a lot about genre before. And, like, yeah, eras are a useful shorthand that are deeply flawed. But, you know, you know, m maybe there's a little more eras discourse because one of the biggest artists in the world is on a tour called Eras right now. But in general, <laughs> like, there's been talk of artistic periods forever. You know, there's Picasso's yeah. blue period. I was and just going to say. <laughs> yeah, I was literally thinking that same example. So uh, yeah, like like I think I think this is just how we talk about art. Yeah. It's definitely one of the things that's kept me like confession time. I mean, okay, first of all, speaking of brilliant eras, Usher's Confessions just needs to be mentioned cuz to me that might be like the era of all eras. Um, but it speaking of confessions, I am very cautious about releasing music. I've written dozens if not hundreds of songs on my own just the past couple of years yeah. that everyone is always like so when are you gonna like release them and I'm like maybe never <laughs> like um I'm increasingly thinking maybe you know in the the three gig model of being an internet person right you have three gigs you have youtubing podcasting and presumably music and I'm yeah. thinking music is what I would like to be gig number three um because I I play in local bands and I love to write music but it's so personal that there's this part of me that yeah. values my privacy and is like I don't know if I want to invite people in to invade it and I think yeah. that's also like one of the problems is there's lines that get crossed between interpreting the text and like the Gaylor conspiracy you know the way that people behave um accusing Taylor Swift of of queer baiting um, yeah. for money or whatever. I'm like, yeah, because she definitely needs the money, you guys. You know, yeah. and it also brings into, it also brings to mind the very idea of persona 
Yeah. You know, there are artists who adopt personas for one album only. I mean, Bowie is a, is a great example, like the apex. Um, But also I often think about Marina Diamandis, Marina and the Diamonds. Yeah. And how her most popular album was a persona and the way that people are always complaining about how she doesn't make music like that anymore. That's weird to me. Cause I'm like that, that had a limit though. It, Cause it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't her. It wasn't, it was intentionally inauthentic was shockingly inauthentic narrativizing. I think it's interesting though. Cause there's also artists who adopt a persona and keep that for their whole career. Like MF doom literally performed with a mask Right? Yeah. 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 I mean, I've recently been listening to a lot of Ghost if we want to talk about bands that oh, yeah. really commit to an identity. Yeah. That, of course, you're listening to a lot of Ghost. That makes a lot of sense. How dare you? <laughs> First of all, <laughs> you come to my house. <laughs> it's like kind of um, taking the construct of identity in your own hands when you create yeah. a persona. Which, yeah. But also at the same time, the lines are so blurry. Like when people say St. Vincent is exclusively a persona, I'm like, I don't know about that. Yeah. I don't think that yeah. you can write Year of the Tiger as not yourself. I mean, I, 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 I don't think anything is entirely a persona. Like, yeah, I, you, we talk about I, Bowie as like the master of personas, but every part Bowie ever played had a bit of Bowie in it. I just really don't believe it's possible to lie you know, fully in art. Like, I think yeah. the, the truth of you will always come through in art. But I mean, this is the thing that's difficult. And again, with the relationship is the with the fans is, you know, I don't know which truths are actually true. You know, it, it, it's I, I'm yeah. recently I'm working on something on in utero. Um, and one of my favorite albums of all time. Can we please collaborate? <laughs> <laughs> I was literally just at Kurt Cobain's like sitting under the bridge. Um, like oh, uh, wow. just a couple weeks ago, I am That's like, so cool. a born and raised Pacific Northwesterner, Kurt Cobain, like apologist Stan forever. So, uh, use, use me. What I wanted to mention was in utero is it's super interesting because, you know, it's it's always viewed in the context of Kurt Cobain's death and it's viewed of this as this yeah. kind of morose person writing right before he died. And there definitely are songs that have that. But like one of the biggest songs on the album that's kind of viewed as him talking about the pressures of fame and stuff like that is All Apologies. All Apologies was written in 1990. He wrote that song before Nevermind. He wrote that song yeah. before any of the yeah. fame. And it, but it's, it's, you know, you can go in circles forever because he wrote that song before the fame. So it probably, you know, wasn't about that, but he decided to record and release this song that he'd written four years ago on In Utero. So that tells you something about the state of mind that he's in when he makes that decision. So there's this constant kind of, as a whole, kind of eras and narrativizing and all of this stuff is, you know, part of the fun of being a fan of an artist is trying to excavate the artist from all of the noise. People can go too far. People can become obsessed. People can dox artists. People can do all kinds of not cool stuff. I'm your biggest fan. I'll follow you until you love me. 
Y- yes. <laughs> well, it's always yeah. very funny to I mean, me. Speaking of artists who were very specific about their images. <laughs> it's it's always very funny to me where people talk about like stan culture. And I, I saw a headline once that's like the darker side of stan culture. And I was like, hmm, if only somebody had written a song about, you know, toxic fans and maybe called it stan. <laughs> like, Well, that's where um, the word stan comes from is Eminem. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's it's so funny how people talk about like how toxic stan cultures are. And it's like, yeah, the entire term comes from a song about toxic fandoms and then people starting to use it like ironically like oh look i love them so much i'm toxic i'm a stan and then people just start sincerely using it and it's like yeah that's like i mean i use the word stan like language changes but it's still it's very interesting where the origin of that comes from when you come back around to people now being like oh stan culture is bad it's like yeah, that's the, that's the point of the song. Yeah. <laughs> no, Marshall tried to warn us. <laughs> but they don't like Marshall anymore. What's the lyric? They want some shady, he's chopped liver. Yes. Anyway. <laughs> so I actually have one more conundrum, if you will, to bring up with you guys. Yes. Sure. Love to pick your brains about. So I, I'm constantly seeing all these, you know, music journalism takes about the death of the album and the album is dead and all anyone cares <laughs> about anymore is it's singles not. and playlists. <laughs> and I think maybe the strongest counter to that is like, well, then what about eras? Yeah, yeah I actually I actually think quite the opposite is true. Um, I think in musical discourse, I, I think in a lot of people, there are definitely a lot of people that listen to singles and especially playlists, but I think in musical discourse, people talk about albums maybe more than ever. I, I mean, I wasn't around in the 70s, but people evaluate albums so much to the point where like, it's hard to get people to listen to and to understand that artists can operate in frameworks differently than albums and that the album is kind of an arbitrary thing that we, you know, kind of settled upon sometime between like 1949 and 1964 is when we decided what an album was. It's, It's really, it's frustrating to me because a lot of the music that I really, really love operates outside of an album framework like early folk music there's no such thing as a woody guthrie album there's no such thing as a billy holiday album and then even like listing like all my favorite artists here yeah yeah. (laughs) throughout this whole conversation yeah (laughs) yeah yeah this is we're vibing well the album (laughs) is dying is a lazy take that it's easy to get people worked up about because people really think the album is sacrosanct and i like albums i think albums are great i think that it's kind of insane and noah would never get worked up about this question so (laughs) i i think it's kind of insane that we live in a world where music distribution has never been easier and so much of our musical conversation is still tied to a a, you know, an artistic form that was very much based on old models of production and distribution. Yeah. Yeah. Technological limitations as well. Yes. Uh, but I think for me, I think it just, it very whether or not the album is dying varies so much by genre, by artist, and most importantly, by listener. Like 
I think that yeah. there are types of listeners who are going to seek out albums. I do that a lot these days. I didn't used to. Like, that's sort of been more what I've gravitated towards. But I also totally understand the perspective of just, like, you know, putting your iTunes on shuffle and seeing what happens. Is it still called iTunes? I think it's called Music Now, the app. I don't know. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's Apple I'm Music. I'm a Spotify user because I'm a, a filthy, Yeah, I think it's horrible. Apple Music or Spotify. Like, Join us on Tidal. Join me on Tidal. Nobody uses Tidal. Well, okay. Also, to, <laughs> to clarify, um, I actually, like, still buy. And this is the other yes. thing is, uh, yeah. I, it's like, I don't know how all of these articles talking about the doomsday of the album and no one buys music anymore could even like, it, it's it's like, give me a break because every day I, I have to go listen to every Joanna Newsom album on <laughs> like, you know, yeah. on um, FLAC, right? On FLAC. Like, that's yeah. how I own it. Well, all, it's also like, this is the other thing is during the golden age of the album, during the 70s, do you know how most people listen to music? The radio, not right. not albums. Most people have actually God always <laughs> like like I, I love albums and albums are very cool. And, you know, in the 70s, a lot of what we kind of know as of, of as the album was um, sort of like, you know, album oriented rock uh, really kind of like helped define that. And there were stations that would play full albums or album sides. But but the radio like was in general, the radio up until, you know, kind of like the rise of the internet. The radio has always been how most people listen to music. People have always yeah. listened to music and songs because it turns out a song is the base unit of music. Like, you know, of a piece of music. Like, it's it's pretty... Uh, so I have to drop in and say popular music here. I just... Yes, yes, that's true. That's fair. Of course, that's fair. Yeah. There will be like, people yeah, well, who will be mad if I let that go without commenting, but I also don't disagree with you. I'm having yeah. a major Alice Coltrane moment. You know what I mean? So, like, <laughs> yes. yes. Yes, absolutely. But, you know, I also think the audience can tell. I think when... <laughs> I'll, I don't know how to say this in a way that won't get me like murdered by stands, but maybe I shouldn't care. There are artists that are releasing like 18 track albums with no cause. Those, okay, here's a good example. Scorpion 2018 scored top, uh, seven, I believe, top 10 hits. Um, and none of them had any staying power. So yeah. like, there's the question, like, were they even hits? Could you tell me what one of them was? I don't personally recall what like the big songs on Scorpion where I remember there was a duet quote unquote with uh, like a Michael Jackson unreleased song, which was weird. Um, but then you look at like everything The Weeknd puts out. It's all so cohesive. All the albums become iconic. And then you have songs from previous albums circling through uh, TikTok and becoming popular now. Like I was shocked when Die For You came on the radio the other day because for me, that's like, a firmly 2016 song because I'm an album listener. So I had Starboy on a CD in the car on and on and on. But like, it, it's it's still good. And people are yeah. discovering it for the first time. So it's got that hit making potential versus I don't see the same thing happening with those like gigantic 18 track. Uh, I don't yeah. I'm gonna try to be as nice as possible. <laughs> but I would probably <laughs> say like farts. <laughs> there are a lot of albums where I'm like, yeah, this is not I, yeah. an album, but rather like a spew. 
yeah, this is Drake vomiting on me for four hours. Right, exactly. I'm like, this is yeah. quantity <laughs> over quality for sure. And that's not a Drake-specific criticism per se, but it is a general like music trend criticism. I'll, I'll specifically criticize Drake on that as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there's definitely a lot of albums I'll listen to. And I feel like I can tell which five of these songs you had planned as singles. Yeah. And I'm not sure why the rest of it is here. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So true. I mean, I one of the better takes I've seen is this idea that um, if you construct an album like a playlist, you're more likely to draw in us Gen Zs. Um, specifically, the writer, I'll try to find the article and cite it, was talking about SZA. Um, and I think that's great. But also at the same time, I'm like, yeah, but... Uh, Again, is that not a thing we've been doing since, like, yeah. square one? Yeah. Literally, like, there's a... Bruce that, Springsteen has a whole yeah, theory about it. I was thinking, yeah, it. four corners, yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is this has been great, um, but I do yeah. think we should wrap this up for the f- sake of our fans um, at some point. Yeah. Our stands, all the Ghost Note stands. <laughs> We're entering a new era yeah. of Ghost Notes now. <laughs> was there any, any last kind of thoughts you wanted to get out anything that you wanted to touch back on or any summaries or any last big questions that'll open us into 40 more minutes of conversation (laughs) (laughs) uh one short last thing i'll say is i painted the words beware of false prophets on my banjo um so i believe that uh great music lasts forever um otherwise i wouldn't be a gen z doing a woody guthrie tribute (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yep, that's that's yeah. phenomenal. If I can sum up <laughs> our thoughts on eras, I think it's that they are good and bad and complicated and y- you know, it's 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 a thing. That's my thought. Yeah. Corey, you got anything better? I mean, I feel like that's just a very atypical conclusion for a Ghost Notes episode to wind <laughs> up at. So, <laughs> uh to be clear, this is how every Ghost Notes episode ends. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, I, I think I am good on things. I agree. I think largely, I don't think I have anything to add that I haven't already said. So yeah, I guess before we go, uh, Lola, do you want to plug some of your stuff, let people know where they can find you? Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually no longer on um, social media generally. Um, Smart. Because good for I'm you. Because I'm like, it's one of those things, right? You know, I had mentioned earlier, like, really value my privacy. And I was just like, yeah, I uh, I have no interest, actually, in, like, constantly sharing my thoughts with people. I don't know why I do this. It's just kind of <laughs> something I've been doing since I was, like, 10. And so I, I uh, yeah, you probably can't find me consistently on social media, I'm afraid. But I do have a YouTube channel uh, named after myself, Lola Sebastian, where I talk about music, pop culture, um, art generally. A lot of times I talk about literature. My latest essay uh, on James Franco's adaptation of The Sound and the Fury uh, talks extensively oh about Kendrick Lamar and Hatsune Miku, if that's your kind of thing. Well, that's nice. Yeah. Faulkner, Lamar, Hatsune Miike. I have always said that's the big three. These are the greatest writers of our generation. <laughs> it really is about the like artists made faceless and the superimpositions we put on them, which felt very relevant to today's uh, discussion. Yeah. So if you Absolutely. like that sort of thing, I'm on YouTube and Nebula. Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much for joining yeah. us. This was a this was really a ton of fun. This was a great episode. Really appreciate all your insight. So wonderful. I really uh, appreciate being here. Awesome. All right. Bye, everyone.